0: God is uh, faithful, and He's going to do amazing things in 2023. Do you believe that? I got to get used to saying 2023. Not quite there yet, but um, I'm getting close every day. Um, but today we're going to be starting a new series in First Timothy, walking through the entirety of, of the book of First Timothy in a series that we entitled "Church: Why Bother?" And now, most people might be like, "Why in the world would you tell people church? Why bother?" And honestly, it's not that we want to tell you that. We want to show you the opposite of that. But I feel like uh, I want to start off maybe uh, reading for you bits of an article that kind of gets your mind going as to maybe why Woodside would go down this road and engage with a series called Church, Why Bother? As we look at uh, uh, the year ahead in 2023, it kind of gives us maybe the idea of why we would want to engage in that conversation. It's interesting uh, in March of 2021, uh, the Gallup Research and Polling Organization uh, published a report that revealed for the first time in the history of the United States, a majority of the Americans do not belong to a house of worship or a church. In 2021, there's a first time that less than half of the country said they were a part of a local church. The article was entitled, U.S. Church Membership Falls Below Majority for the First Time. And it exposed really the fact that presently only 49% of American adults belong to a local church. The Gallup has uh, been tracking this actually since 1937, which is is fascinating. So for the last six decades, the number hovered over, just over, around 70% of Americans reported they attended a local church. For the last six decades. And now in the last two decades, there's been a steady decline or or really a dramatic decline in people acknowledging that they're at least even a part of a local body of believers. And it's even more alarming really when you get into the specific generations within within society at the end of the day. So you look just in my generation, I know you might not believe it, but I'm a millennial. And maybe even it's even gets worse as you go on to the next generation. But if you just look like isolate, just the millennial generation, for example, only 36% of the millennial generation actually is actively participating in a local church. So the decline is not only just over the last two decades, it's generational. As each generation goes on, the that the, the individuals within the United States that are actively a part of a local church is declining. And it seems as though the entire country maybe, or a, a large majority of our country, is asking the question, church, why bother? Like, what's the point? Is there really any benefit for me as a believer to be a part of a local community? And honestly, maybe you today are here, maybe you're joining us online, you're watching, uh, you are there. Maybe you've wrestled with those same thoughts, like at the end of the day, what's the point? Or maybe you have some friends or family members or people you know that wrestle with the thing, same thing. It might surprise you that even church leaders have sometimes been there, or are there? Man, I'll tell you, I had my own season in time when I wrestled with, why bother? When I was studying to be a pastor in college, I, it was there, during that time, I loved Jesus. I, I, I loved uh, the Lord. I wanted to be a follower of Jesus. I wasn't walking away from the faith. But during that time, I literally walked away from the church. And I literally said in my own mind, man, why bother? I don't want to be a part of this. A lot of it stemmed from church hurt, my, my family experienced, and being hurt by a local church that we've been a part of for a long period of time and even seeing and witnessing what the church was like and what I experienced in my own hurt and really at the end of the day I was like why bother? I mean this doesn't this isn't worth my engagement and honestly it was during that time of my life where the Lord deeply and profoundly reminded me of the importance of spiritual family to the point in which I've set my life out to convince others the importance of spiritual family. Deep and profound, active participation in spiritual family. And honestly, over the next several weeks, I'm going to press on you. I hope that's okay. I want to I encourage you and show you. I want us all to see together the importance of the local church. What it should mean in our lives, that there's a blessing, there's benefits, and there's a necessity of doing life together. And as we're on that journey, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy together. And so as we open up in 1 Timothy, I just want to share a little bit about 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy is the first of three letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, that are classically known as pastoral epistles, where the Apostle Paul is writing to a pastor of a local church and explaining God's plan for them and really instructing and encouraging them on how to lead the family of faith in that local expression. And so Timothy is a local pastor in Ephesus, in a city called Ephesus. Later on we'll get there, but you can read even about the experience when the apostle Paul planted this church and And he calls Timothy uh, uh, a son, as we'll see just in the first couple of verses, that there was a close bond between Paul and Timothy as he says he's a son in the faith. And, And Paul was like a father to him. This familial language, as we're going to get to in a few moments. And the thing that connected them together was the gospel. The gospel that Christ had given his life and rose from the grave. And now it was their job together to follow Jesus and make Jesus known. And it was this familial bond together that was bound through the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy as some concerns. He's strongly concerned as later on in chapter 4 he shares that, that many of the church, he's afraid, is going to depart from the community of faith, the church, and follow after false teachings. And he wanted Timothy to know, and then Timothy to let the church know of that, to avoid that temptation and to remain faithful, and to remain faithful to a couple of things. To remain faithful to the gospel, first, but also to remain faithful to the community of believers. That, that there was something that we needed to hang on to here. And over the next several of weeks, I, I want to convince you of the same thing. To remain faithful to the gospel and remain faithful to the local community. The follower, the, the, the embodiment of Christ in the local expression, which is the church. And the tension of it all is, is that even as I shared in the article that I previously read from, we're living in the days that the Apostle Paul warned of. We're, we're living in those days where many are, are departing from the faith through deconstruction, they're the, the departing from the faith and opting out for church, I- intentionally, really choosing their own brand of spirituality that that, that is personal. It's my personal faith that, that really lacks at the end of the day spiritual authority and accountability, and, and I have nothing to do. No one's going to tell me what to do because it's my personal faith. Now I'll come back to this in a little bit, just to press us in a little bit. That the fact that we keep talking about that I have a personal relationship with Jesus, which you do, we keep talking about that is really robbing the church today of the beauty of what God has called us to and what we are called to experience. I just want to remind you, the only thing personal about your faith is the faith you placed in Christ. And everything after that, throughout all of Scripture, is experienced in the context of communal living. The only thing personal is that I couldn't place your faith in Christ for you. You had to do it, and you can't do it for me. Then after that, all the benefits of following Jesus, all of the the joy of following Jesus is experienced in the context of local community together. And we have a generation of people that like, don't tell me what to do in my faith. It's my personal relationship with Jesus. And God has so much more than that. Through the leadership that he's placed in church, through the community he's placed in your life through the church, and he has great things in store for us that we are, a whole generation is missing out on. And when we disconnect ourselves from the community of faith, and I'll just remind us, you can attend church every Sunday here and be disconnected from the the community of faith. When we disconnect ourselves, we are prime targets for Satan, who is roaring. So, is explained as a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. And our safety is found in the truth of the gospel and the community of faith as we live life one with another. So, church, why bother? At the end of the day, when we look at that, just, just quickly, as I don't want to spend too much time, just what is a church? What is the church? And this isn't exhaustive. I just want to look at a couple of passages of Scripture that find their roots in the Torah, the Old Testament, but find their greatest clarity in the New Testament. And all of them find are centered around Jesus. Matthew sixteen eighteen, Jesus says the church belongs to God. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Woodside isn't Jim's church, Pastor Chris's church, or anyone else's. It's God's church. And here Jesus is really talking about the global church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is the, the head of the church, Ephesians 1:22. then he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church. Jesus is the central and preeminent uh, individual in the church. Colossians 1:18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that Jesus is the preeminent in all of the church. Ephesians chapter 5, at every wedding you read almost, Ephesians 5, where it talks about husbands and wives, and what is the example given there? At the end of the day, that Christ and the church are the embodiment and the picture of marriage, and we are the bride of Christ, and Christ is the husband of the church. In each of the passages, the word word ekklesia, the Greek word ekklesia is used, which specifically means an assembly. An assembly. So while I believe in the global church, the big C church, at the end of the day, almost 90% of the passages in the scripture, it's speaking to a localized body, an ekklesia, an assembly, together. And in all of it, we see the family spiritual family at the end of the day that upholds the truth of the gospel and spreads the gospel that's what i want you to see is the church is a family that upholds the truth and spreads the gospel this is who we are and this is what we are to do and today i just want to share with you a couple few characteristics of uh the church that define the church as the apostle paul reads in just a couple of verses in first timothy chapter one And if you would look with me, it'll be on the screen as well. 1 Timothy chapter 1, first couple of verses. We see, maybe not overtly, but you see there that we are spiritual family. We're intended to be family together. Read with me, verses 1 and 2. Paul addressing Timothy begins by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace and peace and mercy from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the first thing I want you to see is we're a spiritual family. As Paul opens and addresses Timothy, giving his typical kind of salutation, his authorship. This is Paul and who's the recipient at the end of the day and a greeting of endearment here at the end of the day. Paul here... Is saying even at the beginning, he didn't consider himself an apostle by his own, like, kind of aspiration or choosing. And today it says that God chose or commanded him to serve in this capacity, right? A, by command of God, our Savior. And then he uses two specific terms to describe God, um, the Father and Jesus. He says, at the end of the day, the description of God as Savior. Now, Timothy was trained in, in the scriptures. In 2 Timothy, in, in chapter 3, we, it says that he had been taught the holy scriptures from childhood. Now his mother was Jewish and his father was Greek, and so his mother actually taught him the scriptures. He was well-versed in the Torah. And some of what is shared, these, 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 these words, our Savior and our hope, they reckon back to the Old Testament. And Timothy would have known well what, what Paul was getting at here, And when he's saying our our Savior, hearken back for Timothy as he read back to the time of the Exodus. You know the story of Exodus. as God was the Savior as Israel was bound as slaves to Egypt. And Moses was brought about by God, even unwillingly, not really wanting to, reluctantly, to go down and to be the spokesperson to redeem the people of Israel. And so the people of Israel oftentimes is, is... see Moses as the hero of the story. And now while Israel is, is, is great to honor Moses, and Scripture is quick to actually um, you know, honor Moses, even in Hebrews, at the end of the day, he only acted really as a spokesperson, the true hero. The true hero of the exodus, of the story of Exodus, the one who sends the plagues, the one hardens, who's able to harden and soften hearts, the one that ultimately rescues the people of God, is God the Savior, and that's what he's saying at the end of the day. And while Paul is really referring to God as our Savior, he's not only referring to that, but he's also speaking to the true author of salvation, really at the end of the day, as Israel would have looked forward to Jesus by sending Jesus his Son as the Savior for all who would believe in Jesus. So he says there that our God, our Savior, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, what also? Our hope. Paul's saying, man, God is our Savior, but he's also our hope. Describing Jesus as our everlasting hope. He's acknowledging at the end of the day, here at the very beginning, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and the hope of Israel. All of the prophets spoke about him, all of what they said. Jesus is the expectation and the realization of all that they hoped. But more than just simply a standard greeting or opening at the end of the day, like any other Greco-Roman letter of their time, his, his greeting is a passion, a celebration of God as our Savior and Jesus as our hope. And, and really, at the end of the day, this is a greeting that's a celebration of a family of faith, that we have become a family in that Savior God, in that hope of Jesus, like if you read, it's hard to miss the familial language found in the text. When you read it, God's—that's God's not just our Savior; He's our Father. It says in the text. Isn't that awesome? Timothy is not just a disciple of Paul; he's a son to Paul. And these aren't at the end of the day like just random nouns. He didn't just write this randomly, and God didn't author it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Randomly at the end of the day, this is a haphazard selection of, uh, of words by the Apostle Paul. At the end of the day, he's communicating a new reality, a new way of living found now through Christ, our hope, our Savior. And, and he wants us to embrace that Christ is our new identity. And in that identity, we have a new family, a spiritual family to walk with. I mean, even just in the text, if you read it, look at the hours. He's not... Speaking of just an individual, your personal faith. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope at the end from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No, now that we are found in the community of faith, at the end of the day, you're no longer strangers, so you look around in this room. You're not just mere acquaintances. You're not just simply friends or, or, or group people that are in your group or go part of your church, you are blood relatives in Christ. In Christ, you are a family, you are a spiritual family. Now, now here's a moment where I might push on you a little bit. So, who is your spiritual family today? Who's your spiritual family? Is this ecclesia, this assembly, your spiritual family? Family And how would you know, how would I know, whether or not this is your spiritual family? Is it because you attend every week? Is it because you attend once a month? Is it because you said on Facebook, this is your church? How do you know, how do I know that this is your assembly? And this is where we get a a pushback by a number of people, even for today, in the idea of membership. So, people are like, I don't see membership anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't use the word, it's not in the Greek. Well, it's not. So, why do we have membership? Because we want to be like Costco? Like, man, with your membership, you can come in and buy large portions of cereal. No. Why do we do it then? Is it because of the, the, the other side where people are like they just want to, like, it's all about money and control? Is that why we have membership? No. When the Apostle Paul's writing, who's he writing to? Timothy, a local pastor in Ephesus, the church of Ephesus. Then you read in the New Testament, there's Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. These are all communities with which there was, how many churches in that? One church. How many churches do we have in Lake Orion? There's a lot, I'll just tell you. There's a ton of churches at the end of the day in this area. Man, I'll read a passage from you from Hebrews, and I think, because I was there in college, one of the guys was like, man, why is church membership important? We don't need to have church membership. Forget that. While I was studying the Bible until I read one passage in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, this is what it says. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Man, I hate that one. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And that's, that's scary language for me. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Praise God, from whom all blessings fall. Submit, it says, submit to them. Obey your leaders for they keep in watch over your soul. So I'll just tell you as a, a, a pastor of this ecclesia, this, this gathering, this assembly that's in this area called Woodside Bible Church of Lake Orion, how am I to know who I am going to give an account one day to God for? Is it just anyone who randomly walks in the door? They're visiting. Is it because you came twice a week? Now that scripture is binding to me. Is it because like, you, you gave financially? Is it because you joined a group? Now I'm, I'm, I'm literally going to give an account for your soul to the God of the universe? And who have you? So both of us, this is, this is a big deal for both of us. So who are you submitting yourself under spiritually, authority-wise? We don't like authority in our day and age. I've learned that a lot in the last number of years. Because it's a given flow. As followers of Jesus, we submit ourselves under spiritual authority, and then authority is going to give an account as to how they lead, how they instruct, how they shepherd, how they walk with. And so how in the world do you know who you've submitted under, and how do I know who I'm going to be spiritually responsibly for? Because at the end of the day, it's a lot easier to do it the other way. So many believers today, man, I don't want to make myself bound to a, to a group of people because, man, when the, when the pastor or someone in that church challenges me, it's easy for me to go up the road to another church. And, man, I like what the church up the road, I like what Kensington does. So I, I go there sometimes these days, and I like what Woodside does. Craig, he's a great friend of mine, Craig McGlossin, the Kensingtonorian, love him to death. Man, in other days, I, I don't like what Woodside's doing, so I go over to the river. Man, the Combs boys are great friends of mine. Love them to death. And on other days, I I go to this church over here because I want to go to the spiritual buffet of every church. I don't want to submit myself under spiritual authority and allow them to be spiritually responsible for you for eternity. You see, membership isn't just something that we made up because we thought it was a good idea. I think there's spiritual grounds for it, for us to know as a church, who are going to be responsible for and for you to know who you are walking with, who you are submitting to, one to another, not just leadership, but one to another. Who is your spiritual family? Because at the end of the day, it's not always easy. I don't know about your family. Maybe your family is like perfect. And you walk around the house and everybody's like, oh, good morning, good, ah, oh, yeah. I love you, bless you. Your children are praying. You, you wake up in the morning and your, your kids are laying hands on one another and just anointing each other with oil. And No, my family is like, ah, like tearing each other's hair out. I'm like, you're grounded. Do you even know Jesus? Like, you know, that's family. Man, a family's not always going to be perfect here or any other church you are a part of. But we're called to walk as a family. We fight together. We love together. We walk together. We don't bail on each other. And at the end of the day, the Lord is saying, you are a spiritual family in Christ Jesus. And it's not some flat obedience thing. Okay, Jim, next steps is coming up on the 15th. I'll go and become a member. Fine. No. No. It's that now we live out these truths. We we're family. We love each other. We challenge each other. We're there for each other. We open our wallets for each other. We we walk together. It's family. That's what the Lord is calling us to. And I probably have like five minutes left for my next two points. But I think that is so important for us to realize. We're family together. Well, not all that. As you move on, we're going to jump down a number of verses and. Verse fourteen, that we're called to model and confess the truth as the church. Look in verse fourteen with me. I hope to come to see you soon, Paul says. But I am writing these things to you so I'm writing things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I want to pay attention to that one, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. But we're called to model and confess the truth at the end of the day. You see, these are our super intimate words from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And he's exhorting Timothy. Now, unlike other times where he's exhorting Timothy really uh, on how to instruct others, now he's really instructing Timothy how to conduct himself and be a model, and then the church to conduct himself. And he leads into a portion of the latter in which he's going to challenge his son in the faith on a type of behavior he ought to have as a leader in the church directly, and then hopefully the church will follow after. You see, Paul says he longed to see Timothy. He was his a real son in the faith. Right? And he longed to see the members of the church of Ephesus, face to face. Write it down, Acts chapter 18 and verse 19. The apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, planted this church. He knew these people. They were spiritually family that, that held a special place in his heart. And he longed to see them and he was passionate about coming to see them soon. But until then, at the end of the day, he wanted Timothy to know some stuff that was very important. He, he exhorts Timothy to remember that the church is a household. Now again, It's talking in familial language. Remember the household of God at the end of the day. And since church isn't just merely a building, but a household, a family, Timothy, he's saying at the end of the day, is to model and confess the truth of the gospel by all that he says and he does. How he behaves, as the scripture says. Behave in the household of God. How you ought to live in the household of God. And then in verse 16, confess, like how we are to live and how we're to speak. Like this is what I want you to do. How to conduct yourself that's consistent with the truth of the gospel. Because why? Because God is living among them. does it say? Which is the church of the living God. We serve a God that is alive and active and he's walking with us. And he's a God that actually sees how we conduct ourselves with one another. He's not a God who is just a distant God who knows nothing about our lives and he looks down occasionally and says, hmm, Jim, giving to the church is pretty good. Attendance seems great. You've got 30 small groups. That's awesome. No, God is actively participating in our lives. Like how we are functioning at work and how we're interacting with people in church and how we're loving people, how we're not, how we're bearing each other's burdens, how we're walking with each other day in and day out. And at the end of the day, It's not just some shallow, upfront appearance of moralism God is looking for. He's looking for more than that. He's looking for much more than that. Not some dual life that behind the scenes things are crazy. Paul is speaking to Timothy that he would adopt a way of life that's consistently marked by the impact of the truth of the gospel in speech and behavior. And he says these are the pillar and the buttress of truth. A pillar, you know what a pillar is. We have a lot of them in this room. And they're strong. They hold the roof from coming down. And the buttress is also the foundation. And he says at the end of the day, which is the church, how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. That we, as the followers of Jesus in this place, are meant to be a pillar and a foundation of truth in the way we speak and the way we behave. That at the end of the day, we don't just stand on the truth of God's word, stand on the truth of the gospel. We actually are intended to live the truth of the gospel. To actually live I don't know about you, but I—I'll uh, just say this. I won't. Do you love it when people just swing by unannounced at your home? Okay, a couple people in the back—that's awesome. I don't. No, I'm just kidding. I don't mind it, but it was like uh, just recently Christmas. Uh, no, no, sorry. It was—it was, it was uh, uh, Halloween. My neighbor texted us and said, "Hey, we're on our way over to bring the girls some candy." We were like, snap, like the house is just a wreck, and people, you know, there's, there's stuff all over, and you know how it is, they stand at the door, and they're giving the girls candy, and you know, like, hey, how you doing out there, stay out there, don't come in, it's good to talk to you, we're going to talk through this glass, it's awesome, don't look inside. But no, they stand, the you're like, okay, come on in, yeah, oh yeah, our house isn't normally like this, we just had some people over, and uh, you know, uh, there's underwear over on the floor. You're thinking in the mind, you know, you're like, what's going on in our house? You're trying to kick things and whatever it may be. At the end of the day, we don't, we, we, we love to have our house clean for people that come over. We want it to be presentable. Because on the outside, everything looks great. You know, our, our lawns mowed, things are picked up, things look good. And at the end of the day, you know, but when you, when you look into uh, your home, even when you have people over your home, right, you, you make sure everything looks good. But you might... You don't want them to open a certain closet or a junk drawer in your kitchen. that you just scrape everything off into that and be like, I'll deal with it later. And 10 years later, you're moving out and you're like, man, we never dealt with this drawer. Crazy. At at the end of the day, we get super motivated to clean the inside of our home because we know someone's eyes are going to see it. And I hope you're motivated to live and behave, to function, living out the truth of the gospel in everyday life because God's eyes are on this house. A living God walks among us. The Spirit of God is inside of us. And He sees the way we function and live. And the truth of the gospel The pillar of truth that we are as the local expression, the community of faith, is not just something we stand on, it's something we are called to walk in. And I'll just be honest with you, again, pushing on us a little bit, in the last couple of years, I've seen a lot of Christians wanting to stand on the truth of God, stand on the love of Christ, but not living the love of Christ. Actually forsaking living for standing or thinking they're standing and can i tell you we are called to stand and live behave and speak the truth of the gospel that we might be a pillar and buttress of truth that we would model and confess the truth we would live it and we would speak it and not only that, we're called, as we see in just the, we read part of it in verse 16, if you read with me again. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He is manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Man, you and I, as the church, we are called to spread the gospel of Jesus. And in his previous verse, Paul describes this pillar this, this pillar and buttress and Paul was persuaded that the truth we believe in is neither weak nor subjective it's powerful enough that it can act as a pillar and a foundation for the church and the living God that the gospel is strong enough and begin verse 16 in this almost worshipful proclaiming that great indeed we confess is the mystery of the gospel that we should be confessing this, that he removes all confusion or concerning about the truth of the gospel, speaking to Timothy, that he would speak it to his church. And he proceeds to unpack the truth of the gospel in six clauses that characterize Christ's greatness. What does he say? He says, we manifest in the flesh. Christ was manifest in the flesh, that Christ, the eternal word, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas. He was seen, he lived, he dwelt among us. He was vindicated by the Spirit, he says. Romans 1.4 says for us, it says at the end of the day, the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead was declared by Jesus Christ, or vindicated by the Spirit. So he was seen by angels. If you look at fascinating, when you look at the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry, it was marked by angels. Right? The announcement of his birth, Temptation in the wilderness, right? The the triumph of the entry of the, the empty tomb, excuse me. The angelic proclamation of his glorious resurrection. His lordship was affirmed over and over again, not only by men, but by heavenly messengers. And it says that he was preached among the nations. Paul himself knows super well that this testimony was true. He did three treacherous, unbelievable missionary journeys preaching Christ among the Gentile nations. And at the end of the day, the truth of God's word spread frantically. We are here today some 2,000 years because of that. It was preached among the nations. Not only was it preached, but it was believed. What does he say? He says, was believed in the world. That the gospel was affirmed by the fact that in just a few short decades since the resurrection of Jesus it had been believed upon by men and women throughout the entire Roman world and now again we sit here today as an expression of that. It says that he was taken up to glory. After defeating death. the father clothed, clothed excuse me, Jesus with his pre-existing glory that he had experienced And he had once worn in heaven. John proclaimed in his own words, excuse me, Jesus proclaimed in his own words in John chapter 17, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Unbelievable. The gospel is a transforming truth that upholds the church and that we have believed. And now you and I have been called as sons and daughters, as the family, spiritual family, to not only live and speak the truth, but to spread the good news of the gospel to the world, inviting others to believe and behave the way that Christ has called them to. This is the church spiritual family that models and confesses the truth and spreads the gospel. Can I just ask you and challenge you, when is the last time you confess? Confess the truth of the gospel to someone you know, neighbor, network, friend, family. That we are not just called to be spiritual family pent up in this place, sitting on the truth of God, the pillar and wait until Jesus comes back. He calls us for much more, that we would invite the world to join us on this journey. Man, thanks for listening today. Would you bow your heads in prayer as we go before the Lord? In Jesus' name. God, thank you for today. Thank you for all that you have for us, for the beauty of your gospel and the goodness that we have in you. Father God, would you convict us, bring about change in our lives? Jesus, thank you for your life that was given for us, that you are our Savior and our hope as we have already seen today. Holy Spirit, would you move among us in such a way that your truth would be revealed to us? You've called us to be spiritual family—not not not distant relatives, but close spiritual family that walks together and, and shares pain with one another and lives together and upholds one another. And God, that family is called to be.